welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to welcome you all back to our series on Revelation. Today we are on episode seven, the letter to the church in Sardis. We are getting close to the end of these letters. You know, Sardis is one of the most interesting archaeological sites that they have going on in Turkey right now. They are uncovering so much, and especially as it pertains to architecture, beautiful pieces of architecture, magnificent actually, highly detailed and luxurious, really indicating that this was a very wealthy and prosperous city, which is why Jesus's perspective on this church is so startling. You look alive, but you are dead. There's no deceit like self-deceit, right? This church thinks it's okay, but it's not. So let's read the letter and find out what's going on. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Sardis was the capital of the 6th century BC Persian kingdom known as Lydia, whose kings were thought to be descendants of Hercules. And at its height, Sardis was a land that was very wealthy, very rich, and strong militarily. And Sardis actually were even the first to mint gold and silver coins. That's the type of wealth that they had. Sardis had been under the rule of other powers since Persia's King Cyrus the Great took the city's impregnable Acropolis in about 547 BC. But then it was liberated in 340 BC by Alexander the Great. Then after that, control went to the Greeks. And then after that, the Romans. And it became an important Greek city that was central to the worship of Artemis, known as Diana by the Romans that we covered in the Ephesus episode who was considered the daughter of Zeus and twin of Apollo. She's the goddess of fertility, remember? Well, she was also the goddess of the hunt and goddess of the moon. Well, during the end of the first century AD, at the time this letter is written, Sardis still remained a booming cultural center. It was still a very wealthy place. Located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, remember the junction, It was definitely a much prettier city than that. And due to its prime location on the trade route, it thrived in a couple of key industries, wool and the carpet industry. And those two things contributed to the thriving economy. Keep in mind, they had the beautiful dyes that they could get from Thyatira. So those Turkish rugs were in high demand. That's why Turkish rugs were so expensive, are still expensive. Anyway, Sardis like Pergamon, had an Acropolis. This city's fortress was perched on top of this very imposing looking hill, which seemed impregnable. 
And this mountain was steep, but what was different about this mountain and the steep mountain of Pergamon is that it had a rugged terrain around it, so you couldn't scale it. There was one path that took you up, and it was a very narrow path. So they called themselves the impregnable city. It was incredibly difficult for a nation or any enemy, for that matter, to penetrate it. Well, they ended up getting attacked a couple times, actually, once by the Persians and once by the Greeks. So they really weren't that impregnable. But they also had the plains below, and they're beautiful plains. And a majority of their structures were actually built down there. This is where life happened. And this is where they built a magnificent temple to Artemis. It was a grand temple, one of the seven largest Greek temples ever built. And not just that, but Sardis also became the center of worship for that nature goddess whose name I still can't pronounce from the Ephesus episode, Sibeli, the mother goddess, mother nature, the one who everyone refers to for mother worship. So this is still another prominent, wealthy place. But it was just a little bit further removed from the rest of the places. They had their gymnasiums. They had their stadiums. They had their beautiful structures. But the gymnasium, now that was one of the structures to definitely take note of. Because they were huge on their sports, so they built a massive gymnasium to support it. And it was a very large complex built right there in the center of that lower city over about five acres The western part was characterized by a large vaulted hall for bathing, and the eastern part had a large open courtyard for exercise. So this city, this was a thriving, wealthy city. They had not a care in the world except for its own leisure and its own pleasures and its own sport, right? It thrived in wine, it thrived in revelries, it thrived in money, and it thrived in sexual immorality. Not much different than society today, actually. Well, the Romans at this time, uh, there was a lot of religious freedom that flourished in Sardis, and the Romans wanted to appear inclusive. So as long as your God was not greater than any other God that was worshipped, then you can go ahead and worship them. So in an effort to show solidarity in that, the Jews built a large synagogue in Sardis, and it was constructed as part of the city's gymnasium bath complex. Now, this came later after this first century church, but either way, it was a way in which they were trying to show this inclusivity. And so, and it was the largest Jewish synagogue outside of what was now destroyed Israel. So it, this type of religious freedom was taking place in Sardis during this time. And despite the city's worship of pagan gods, Non-believers did not live under the fear of persecution like they did in, say, Smyrna. Archaeological digs have actually uncovered shops that were owned by Jews and Christians built side by side. Now, notice the words Jesus uses, though. You think you're alive, but you're dead. Sardis Christians must have looked like other Christians and maybe even acted like them to some degree. But Christ is bluntly declaring them dead. There was a self-sufficiency, self-confidence, and self-indulgence going on in this city. And even though those three things aren't specifically listed in this letter, the traits of that city would have exemplified those things. People here did not have a care. They did not need anyone. They did not need anything. Again, much like society today. And this church was defiling themselves in this culture. 
and didn't seem to care. So let's go into this letter and, and see what Jesus is pulling out. First of all, it says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What are the seven spirits of God? Well, for years, I was taught this to mean the Holy Spirit and the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit found in Isaiah. But, you know, it doesn't really seem to work. What if it's not? Sometimes, and I've said this before, we interpret scripture by scripture. Well, if you look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, which we're going to get to in a few episodes, there's something interesting being said. And it says, In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What do eyes do? Eyes look upon things. Eyes are watching everything. There are seven spirits sent out into the world to oversee different parts of the world and then come and bring report back reports back to the Lord. That's a natural assumption. Could this be the seven spirits Jesus is referring to here? He has the seven spirits. He sees everything that's going on. He also has the seven stars. He has the angels that are going to report everything that's going on in these churches. In other words, he knows all and he sees all. It's just something to ponder, but I'll let you make the decision all on your own. And then it says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Again, these Sardis Christians must have looked like Christians and even sometimes acted like them. But Christ is bluntly declaring them dead. I love how a professor named William Barclay out of the University of Glasgow says it this way, quote, the strange fate of Sardis was that life had been too easy for it. It had grown flabby and had sunk into an easy and voluptuous decadence. And the fate of the church at Sardis was the same. Sardis was not threatened by any of the dangers or perils which menaced the other churches. There was no threat from Caesar worship and from persecution. There was no threat from the malignant slanders of the Jews. The church of Sardis was completely untroubled from without and from within. The church of Sardis was at peace, but it was a peace of the dead. I mean, that is a powerful statement. Think about churches today. Would you say the same? Completely untroubled from without and from within, at least churches here in the West. I can't say that about persecuted churches in other parts of the world right now. But here in the West, we are so careful not to offend that the church appears by the outsider to have nothing special or unique to offer anymore. We look like everything else. We are offering the world an unoffendable Jesus, not a life-saving one. And so I find his statement about Sardis so on par with where the church in the West finds itself today. And then he says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. They still have time. They can wake up to what he's saying and get it right. Remember, my friends, we'll be judged for our works or lack thereof too. Don't forget that. Their works need work. And he's trying to tell them this. Remember, therefore, 
how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. In Greek, hold fast means to guard from loss or injury. So you're guarding something. You don't want to lose this. You don't want it to get hurt. You are properly keeping an eye upon something. That's what it means to hold fast. Think about that as it pertains to Sardis. The king of Lydia felt safe in his towering fortress, right? That impregnable, I can't even say that word, impregnable fortress. Yet due to this, he lost his throne. It was a false sense of security. And I I think, well, let me get to that in a minute. And because Sardis was not watchful, those in this, quote, impregnable city allowed their defenses to grow weaker and weaker. And I think this is what's happening to the church today, at least here in the West. We, we do not, we are letting our defenses grow weaker and weaker. We are taking our salvation for granted and are walking about with a false sense of security, as we're going to see at the end of this letter when he talks about removing names from the book of life. It's exactly what's happening here. We too today as the church need to hold fast. The simplicity that's found in Christ amid this pleasure and luxury-loving city of tolerance was a group of Christians, a congregation who had taken on the temperature of society around it, much like we're doing today in the West. Cities that flaunt decadence and sin almost always pride themselves on tolerance and love. It's It's what's happened over time. And this same attitude crept into the congregation there and here. Don't think for a moment that God does not see that. And again, we still have time to wake up and get it right. Then he says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and will not, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. What does a thief do? A thief comes in to take things. Jesus is saying here, I'm going to come upon you as a thief if you're not watching. What is he going to take? I think that's a big question right there. The people of Sardis understood what this meant. There was a king, King Croesus, the wealthiest king in the world who ruled this region. And this king, to protect himself and keep himself safe, built that massive city fortification. And that one that was impregnable, right? That we've been talking about. No army could take it. Sure enough, he was right. When Cyrus came through, he couldn't take it. So what did Cyrus do? He put the city in siege and the people in the city in siege and camped his soldiers around it. Well, one night, one of Cyrus's soldiers noticed a soldier on the wall looking over the wall and his helmet dropped to the ground. This soldier went down this little set of stairs, opened a secret door, went out, got his helmet, closed the door and went back in. Cyrus now knew what to do. He sent his army to the other side of the city, creating a distraction. Cyrus's army went to that side of the city while his secret special forces went in through the little secret door and took the city. Just when King Croesus thought he was safe, he was not. They came in like a thief. It not only happened once, but twice when the Persians invaded also. They noticed what happened with the Persians. They noticed vultures that would stay stationed on a particular area of a wall. After further investigation, they learned that dead bodies would be disposed of on this side of the wall. The vultures were waiting for those bodies. And they noticed that that part of the wall was unprotected. 
So the Persians took that gate and went in and took the city that way. Just when they thought they were safe, they were not. Jesus is reaching back into their own history to remind them, you think you're alive. You think you're saved, but you're not. You're dead. In an hour you know not, I'm going to come against you. But I still am giving you a warning. I'm giving you time. And my friends, there are people out there that think they are saved. They think they are Christians and they're not. You think you're alive, but you're dead. But you have time still to get it right. Then he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Yes, there's actually someone in Sardis who has not been corrupted. He almost seems surprised by it. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. I love this part because Jesus is bringing an imagery of something that takes place in Sardis that they can relate to. That big, beautiful, magnificent gymnasium I spoke of, right? After sports in that gymnasium, they would go into the big, beautiful bathhouse. They would get all cleaned up. Then they would put on these white robes and they would go parade around in these white robes. It was symbolic of being clean. And he says, you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He wants the people there to be clean like he wants us to be clean and to walk with him. Jesus is using imagery of cleanliness from their own city to prove a point. He loves to walk with his people. He walked in the garden. He walked amongst the camp in Israel. He walks among his people. We are to walk with Christ. We are to walk out our faith, right? We do it in cleanness. And then he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Whether it's white garments, white raiment that we'll see next, the white stone with the name on it, the white throne of judgment, the white horse, there's a lot of white imagery that we're going to go into in the upcoming weeks in Revelation. But the thing to note here is that it's he who overcomes. That's the key part you've got to recognize. That's the big word. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, symbolizing purity, cleanness, holiness. The world did not get the better of you. You held fast from loss, from injury. You clung to me no matter what. And I'm going to show the world that you made it by clothing you in these white garments. And I will not blot out your name from the book of life, but confess your name before my father and his angels. This is the second time now we've mentioned something similar. In episode one, that curse in Revelation 22 threatens to remove the name of someone from the book of life. And here it says, if they overcome, he will not blot out their name from the book of life. You know what that word blot means? It means a pen knife that scrapes something off of a piece of parchment. That's what that means. To blot out a name in the book of life is to scrape a name out of the book of life. What do you think about that? 
What do you think about that when you hear someone say once saved, always saved? It's definitely something to ponder, my friends. It's a very serious thing to say. Twice now we read that our name can be removed from the book of life. And we're reading it from the letter that Jesus wrote. Now that is something we should really be thinking about as we walk out our faith. Did this church make it? All that's left of the temple of Artemis is ruins, of course. But behind the temple is proof that this little church made it, at least for a couple centuries. The ruins of an old Byzantine-style church was built, indicating that the church did make it for a bit. So that is encouraging. I don't know if it's Byzantine, but it's that style. And that impregnable hill in Sardis? Today, the hill jutting from the ruins of the city is only about a 1,000 feet high. In the 6th century BC, however, historians believe this hill was at least 2,000 feet high, and some think it was, it was 3,000 feet high. But earthquakes have slowly eroded its height over the centuries. Do not allow, my friends, the tolerant and decadent society around you make you complacent. This can bring opportunity for compromise in thoughts and in character which can lead us to be unprepared when Christ comes. We know, we all don't know how it's going to look in all of the forms, but we know the kingdom will be here soon. So we must be very vigilant with our faith. Wisely use each day, my friends, to learn, to grow, and to build your defenses. This letter is such a good reminder of that. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Until next time, God bless you.